I'm Pete Soderling, and welcome to the Zero Prime Podcast, where we explore the early stories of top startups via the experiences of their engineer founders. This week, I chat with Eric Sammer, the founder and CEO of Decodable. Eric was previously an engineering manager at Cloudera and the founder of Rokana, an early observability company that was sold to Splunk. Eric has an amazing perspective on the architecture of data systems based on his years of experience in the field, and we'll be chatting about his thoughts on the opportunities and challenges around streaming data. Before we start our interview, I'd like to personally invite you to our next event for the global data community, Data Council Austin. From March 28th to 30th, 2023, I will personally play host to hundreds of attendees, 80 plus top speakers, dozens of startups that are advancing data science, engineering, and AI. Data Council attendees are amazing founders, data scientists, lead engineers, CTOs, heads of data, investors, and community organizers who are all working together to build the future of data. And as a listener to Zero Prime, you can get a special discount off regular tickets by using my promo code PETE20, that's P-E-T-E-2-0. I guarantee that you'll be inspired by the quality of the folks at the event. I can't wait to see you there. And now, on to the show. Eric, welcome to the Zero Prime Pod. Thanks so much for having me, Pete. So it's great to have you, and it's always I always enjoy our chats. I remember one of the very early talks you gave at the Data Engineering Meetup in San Francisco. It was probably 2014 or something like that, and I think you were likely working at Cloudera at the time, which I want to talk about and touch on. But prior to that, I wanted to ask you sort of what pointed you in the direction of data in the earliest days of your career? Yeah, I mean, so for me, my path to getting into data infrastructure really came through working in the ad tech space. So it was basically a real-time clickstream data and then using that data to basically decide, you know, categorize people and decide what kind of ads to show them and stuff like that. And so there's a lot of like custom database engines and, and those kinds of things that happen and a lot of real-time stream processing you know that happens in the ad tech space so that was sort of the path that i was on prior to getting to connected to clutter in late 2009 early 2010 yeah the hidden gem of many data engineers previous experience in ad tech huh um so so many scale challenges yeah so many interesting data folks have sort of i think emerged from that world a surprising number um if you ask me yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And so what was it that was interesting to you about what you were working on at Cloudera? So I joined Cloudera in the early days, late 2009, early 2010. Uh, they were about 25 people. And so this is like the heyday of where Hadoop was 0.18. It was really sort of in its infancy. And in a lot of ways, there was a lot of change toward in shifting towards open source systems around data infrastructure. I think it was the early days of cloud. It was the early days of of big data and all these other kinds of things. And I had been using it in sort of the ad tech space, you know, and so that's how I kind of got connected to the team at Cloudera. But I think just at that time, everything was new and there was just a lot of activity and new development happening there, both on like the ingest side, which, you know, things like at the time, Scribe and Flume and those kinds of things eventually evolved into things like Kafka these days, but also things like MapReduce and HDFS and Blob Stores and Workflow Schedulers. And these days it's all airflow and those kinds of things. But at the time, it was Uzi and Azkaban and a bunch of those kinds of systems. So and then the the new breed of parallel SQL engines that these days are more evolved into things like Spark SQL and Snowflake and Presto Trino, those kinds of systems. So it was just really exciting at that particular time. And you ended up working on sort of a precursor to 
Presto, if you will. Um, tell us a little bit about that project and what you learned there. Yeah, I did a bunch of different things in the early days of Clutter. But initially started off, somehow I wound up managing the teams that were working on things like Avro and Parquet and was tangentially involved in a project called Impala that was a parallel SQL engine that sat on top of HDFS and S3 and a bunch of other things that worked very closely with Parquet. You know, in, in a lot of ways, I think right around the same time, Presto came out of Facebook and Impala was really meant to start to take over what Hive was doing at that time, basically be like a low latency SQL engine on top of this data. And for a variety of reasons, Presto wound up winning, which was fine. Although these days, I mean, I think you probably see even more Snowflake and, and Databricks and those kinds of systems. But yeah, that that was the project that, you know, uh, I, I wasn't like a main person on it, but I was certainly involved. And so you left Cloudera and you decided to start your first company. Company. The psychology of an engineer founder taking that plunge is always fascinating to me. So I have to ask you, was there a moment when you sort of knew now is the time? And what was the path leading up to that moment for you as an engineer deciding to, to really venture out and start your first company? Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, you know, and, and I'll tell you, I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, I want to be a CEO or a CTO or something like that. I'm not like aspiring to be a serial entrepreneur or any of those kinds of things. For me, I've always just done the most exciting thing that's in front of me as those opportunities became available. And so at Cloudera, I got like tons of exposure to going from a 25-person organization to I think it was maybe 800 people or something like that by the time I left about four years later. And so like I got to see fundraising, I got to participate in sort of like, you know, some of the internals of just running that business. And, you know, in 2014, two co-founders and I kind of had this opportunity to take advantage of the work that we had done at, at Cloudera and sort of the hype around the space to raise money. And it wasn't so much that I felt like I wanted to be a founder, but I really wanted to build something that mattered and, you know, build the kind of place that I thought engineers could be really successful in building a product that made sense to users. And the capital was in front of us and like the stars aligned. It was like one of those situations and it just made sense. And so I kind of just got sucked into it because it was in front of me. I mean, like that's, I wish I had like a better sort of like story around it. But like, honestly, it was really just that the stars aligned, the capital was available. We had a reasonable idea that investors believed in, had some customer interest and really just like kind of grabbed it. I'll say in retrospect, if I had thought harder about what I was doing, I probably would have been more scared of it. Like there's a certain amount of like being naive and optimistic that you have to have to take that kind of plunge. I think if you if you study it too hard, you, you can really like, you know, psych yourself out, you know. So I think uh, in that sense, I was probably just, you know, younger and dumber and maybe more naive, you know, but it all worked out for the best. So tell us how it all worked out. We want to move on to, you know, the streaming topics and things that you've been really focusing on now, which I'm excited to chat about. But I think that Rokana, this company, was sort of opened the door for you, um, I'm sure, for a lot of things you're doing now. And so I'm curious to hear about the lessons that you learned from that experience and briefly how the story ended. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the short version is that, like, you know, we set out to build what we thought was like the killer app on top of that really big data stack, which for us was about observability and machine data. 
data and those kinds of things, basically a Splunk competitor. And so we raised a bunch of money and we did that and we started taking down some customers and stuff like that. But the early stages of developing a product are scary because, you know, you have an idea about what the world should look like and customers don't always agree with you. You have to decide how much of that is, you know, education you need to do in the market versus, you know, just adjusting the product to fit what people are looking for. And I think that we got a couple of customers down. We didn't really nail the product market fit thing, which is, I mean, people talk about it and it's cliche, but the truth is just super hard. And eventually it made sense to exit the business and, and Splunk wound up acquiring us in 2017. And then I spent the next three and a half years at Splunk working on a bunch of cloud data infrastructure and stuff there. But streaming was like a theme throughout all of that. And in fact, a lot of the secret sauce that we had at, at Rokana was really about how we handled streaming data and parsing and ingest and like all of these other kinds of things, which is how I got into things like Flink and, you know, those kinds of systems where we're sort of spend a lot of time today at, at Decodable on that stuff. Yeah. And so tell us about this comment that finding product market fit is really hard. So how have your perspectives changed into how you sort of work through what that means and fog around finding your customers now at Decodable versus how you did in a previous company? Yeah, I think that one of the big things I learned is how to be deeply evidence-based on this stuff. Because I mean, again, like as an engineer, you're like, of course, this problem makes sense. And of course, everybody thinks about it the way that I do. And then what you find is that there people don't, right? They're sort of at different stages of adoption. They may have different systems they're integrating with. There's tons of factors that sort of play into this, or they may not value it the same way. Like it has to not be just like a cool product. It has to be packaged in a way that people can buy. It has to fit in existing tech stacks. There's like all of these different dimensions. And I think I learned maybe the hard way to be flexible in the, in the face of you know the feedback that you're getting and really get clear on the things that you think are differentiated and sort of like the parts of the market that you're willing to push and educate versus the parts of the market where it actually makes sense to not be that different and to really just fit into the way that people think about things and meet customers where they are in terms of technology or terminology, whatever pricing, whatever whatever it is. And it's not just a product thing, it's a whole company thing. I have a ton of fun talking to people about how to solve these problems and work through that process today, but I don't know that there's a formula for it. I think it's just hard. Yeah, it seems like it's this classic situation of, of founders being the almost delusional optimist <laughs> um, slash evangelist because, you know, quote, thought leadership is important for, for many of us who are building especially new innovative tech products and bringing them to market because the market may not quite yet be there. Right. So there's this sort of in intersection of all of the optimism and delusion that needs to accompany that ability. And then the, the cross section of like where the market is now. And isn't it so true that so many of us get tripped up on the, the trade-off and the interplay between those things? And it's important to keep both, both in mind. So I appreciate that advice. Absolutely. So let's move on to streaming because your current company, Decodable, is a really exciting take on making streaming data systems easier for enterprises to adopt. And I want to just cut to the chase because as the resident data council expert on streaming, I have to ask you this question that's kind of like on my heart, so to speak. And basically, it goes something like this. We've been talking about the benefits of streaming for a long time, and yet the war, the debate rages on 
as to sort of all the trade-offs required um, to implement streaming, right? There's, it's a complete yeah. change of paradigm. Your engineers have to think differently, maybe even be retrained in many cases. The systems have been historically relatively complex. What use cases does it really drive that we need anyway? Right? There's all of these, not, not to be too Debbie Downer, but there's all these accusations and questions sort of leveled against the space overall. Eric, sitting here today, the founder of a shiny new, well-funded company bringing amazing, amazing simple streaming solutions to market like why does eric believe that now is the time for streaming to be adopted in the enterprise yeah it's a great question i think those are all very real and fair points for what it's worth you know for being intellectually honest about it i think you know first on the use cases i'll say that the use cases i think have caught up to the technology you know i think especially in the day and age of like covid and stuff like that real-time food delivery logistics retail inventory tracking pandemic spread tracking these are all like inherently real-time applications these days and i think that in a lot of ways you know that's what i mean by the use cases have caught up because I think we always talk about fraud, waste, and abuse as sort of the go-to set of use cases around real time. But I think these days, if you ordered your food and like you just had to like no visibility into where it was or like where it was gonna when it was gonna show up, I think like you'd actually not use that service when things like DoorDash exist. And so I, I think in a lot of ways it's become a necessity, especially for consumer-facing applications. But anyway, I mean, like so I think the use cases have caught up. I think the technology building blocks are there. Fundamentally, we believe that the real time stack is is Debezium, Kafka, and Flink. You know, though that sort of triplet is the equivalent of like Airflow, DBT, Snowflake, you know, as on, on sort of the bad side. And so with no disrespect to any other sort of like products or vendors in that space, I think that there's other options. That's just how we think about it. I'll just say that I think that has firmed up. The complexity in this is actually, in our experience, stitching those systems together to build a platform rather than it being a collection of open source projects. And quite frankly, this is something that I took away from my time at Cloudera, which is that ultimately, I don't think people want 14 open source projects. I think they want the functionality of those projects, but they want it in a package that is digestible and sort of easier to use that deals with some of the stuff that you're talking about, the semantics, the query languages, how do you express the business logic? How do you deploy and operationalize it? How do you get visibility into it? And I think the tooling compared to the back side of the house has just not been as robust. And so like that's the thing that we're trying to solve and present that platform. I'll say that it's it's getting better. I also think that there's a question of the audience. You know, is it the data engineer or is it the application developers? And right now, transparently, streaming is more mainstream on the operational applications that face the front half of the business versus the analytical side of the business, if that makes sense. So I think that like increasingly streaming is eating left to right in the software architecture, like from the operational systems down to the analytical systems. Whereas I think a lot of the batch infrastructure is eating right to left and sort of moving that direction. And I think there is a place where these things coexist. We're not religious about that. Like we love Airflow and DBT and Snowflake and those kinds of things. In fact, we write data. I think every one of our customers, you know, winds up writing data into either Databricks or Snowflake for the analytics side of the house. So I do think these things coexist. And I think we're centering around SQL as being sort of the language that makes people be able to be successful in both of those. There's tons I can probably say on that, but I'll pause there. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I actually like the insight about the streaming systems moving from the operational side more to the analytics side. Before we talk about the analytics side, because I have a couple questions there. On the operational side, what does this really entail? Because I also see user-facing, customer-facing applications as sort of somehow being in that category. Is that implicit in your definition? 
Yeah. So when I say operational, I'm thinking about that in terms of like online transaction processing type systems. Think Postgres, MySQL. This is where we see a lot of Kafka or Red Panda or Pulsar or whatever the weapon of choice there is. And that's where I think things like Link appear as driving real-time inventory management or dynamic pricing applications or real-time delivery sort of visibility because the data is being pulled out of operational databases or event sourcing systems like APIs and those kinds of things through Flink where the analytics happen. And then that result is placed back into operational or user-facing things like Redis and Postgres and you know all these other kinds of things. And then, yes, a version of that gets written to S3, Snowflake, Databricks, Udi, Iceberg, again, whatever your web choice there is, probably all of the above these days because the stack is more complicated, not less. And I would include front-facing, user-facing analytic database systems like Apache Pino with StarTree or Druid with imply, rock set, those kinds of systems that are more front facing, if that makes sense. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of application developers use those systems inside their sort of DuckDB style, right? Except they're actually distributed systems that people have been using for a while. DuckDB is all the rage in memory, but these other OLAP databases provide real-time statistics and who viewed your profile on LinkedIn, which is obviously the classic Sartre example, et cetera, inside user-facing apps. Yeah. So what about on the other side and the analytics side? Because I think one of the concerns I've heard about streaming analytics and, and does streaming apply to analytics? and do we need it there, is this notion that if we had streaming analytics, it would sort of change the culture of companies significantly. Like you'd have the CFO like looking at the dashboard constantly in the same way that a marketer checks their Google Analytics stats. And you know, would that actually change the tenor and the tone of the culture in the company? Would it be healthy? Or would we just cause like all kinds of crazy you know, over-focus on moving metrics that are being updated in real time when in reality, you know, the BI or the, the analyst teams are really sort of couched in batch analysis monthly or quarterly anyway. So I'm wondering like what you think about that scenario. Yeah, I think, I mean, the value prop for real-time and stream processing on the operational side of the house, the OLTP side of the house, is pretty obvious, right? Like, that's just how the application works. But to your point, like, it's probably less clear on the on the analytical side. I think there's a couple of places where this matters. One, I would say, if you're already sourcing all that data on the operational side, it's very natural to think about using that as the method of ingest into the analytical system. So it's a little bit like a, an icing on the cake, if you will. And that doesn't mean that you can't do monthly analytics. It just means that your data in Snowflake is going to be fresher. It's just going to be more up to date. And especially now with things like Snowpipe streaming and Delta Live tables and like all these other kinds of things, I think people recognize that. I think the other thing is that like it makes sense to separate dashboards on the analytical side where the CFO is staring at things. Like you're probably right. Those things don't need to tick in real time. Maybe they do, but I I don't know. I, I don't take a position on that. But I also think that there's things like if somebody is trying to train a model based on like rapid changes and cyclic changes in data and stuff like that, I think this actually helps to deal with some of the model drift problems, you know, for some of the AI and ML use cases where the thing you're training on is so delayed that it doesn't see the sort of latest artifacts and like you build and train a model and then you deploy it, you see like a wildly different result because like production looks different than what's happening on the analytical side. 
So like, I think that there's, it's more nuanced than just analytics, right? I think there's many different sort of use cases in there. But fundamentally, I think purely, if it's purely a cost savings thing of like, listen, you, you know, you can consolidate a bunch of tools and like write data into Snowflake or S3 or Databricks using the same pipelines that you use to process data. That reduces data governance problems, that reduces cost, that reduces, you know, that makes the data fresher if, if that matters for your use case. And if it's all being done in things like SQL, then like all the analytics you do on the offline stuff can be applied to the online stuff. And like that actually reduces things like feature extraction bugs and like, you know, differences in sort of like offline, online use cases and those kinds of things. So I think the value prop is different, but I don't think that it's zero, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you're, you're sort of doubling down on this right to left shift in the sense that you're actually explaining that this is sort of the maturity model of the evolution of streaming in the real world right now is and that potentially sort of backing into these analytical systems using the same data freshness that we're sort of fighting to achieve on the operational side is actually could be a side benefit or a sort of happy consequence but that's a real world estimation of sort of the way things are moving now which i think is fascinating right right yeah absolutely and i'll just add that i do think that there are use cases where it does make sense i mean you think about inventory management if you're a retailer and company A has something in stock and company B doesn't. I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of loyalty to retailers. Like I buy it wherever it's in stock, you know? And so like, I think those kinds of things matter to consumers. And so like, if your inventory is being driven off of back office, you know, infrastructure type systems, or you're trying to decide when to reorder something, I think these things matter, right? I think ultimately they, they are reflective of customer experiences. Makes sense. So... Is there any use case of streaming that we haven't covered that you think is particularly hidden, but still interesting? No, I think it definitely plays a role in, in what I would think of as like data-driven applications that are more sort of like customer-facing, like user-facing front stuff. I think increasingly things like model training, especially like you start to see where people are abusing and beating up AI models and chatbots and like there's like actual real sort of, you know, impact to those kinds of things. I think that's a case where you would actually want to integrate sort of like the silly things that people are doing sooner and sort of retrain and sort of adapt based on those things. And sometimes maybe that's even online learning where streaming really can play a role or whether it's just offline learning where you're keeping things fresher for training purposes, retraining purposes. And then I think like BI stuff in general, I mean, even at Decodable, we look at product telemetry metrics based on like who's signing up and like what errors are they hitting and where are they coming from and all these other kinds of things. And that's all driven out of a snowflake warehouse at Decodable with Sigma on top, but it's populated in real time, right? Like, you know, we want to see this data in real time because there's plenty of decisions that we can make and optimize so that we can improve customer experiences within a certain amount of time. So I think that like those three families of things, you know, all add up to, you know, streaming being useful. And so not the least of which, um, I wanted to mention that Eric is the track host for our data streaming track at Data Council Austin this March. So Eric, I just wanted to have you sound off on what you're most excited about in the track and, and what you hope that people will walk away from 
the track knowing and understanding that movie they didn't before. Yeah, I mean, I am incredibly excited about the battery of speakers that we have coming up on this instance of, of Data Council. I think we're going to have a bunch of speakers on a myriad of technology, including things like Apache Flink, some more commercial systems. I think uh, the team at Materialize is going to be speaking, Frank over at Materialize, um, and even Python-based systems that are optimized around machine learning with the, with the team over at ByteWax. So I think there's like lots of interesting stuff for a variety of different kinds of people, whether you're thinking about operational stream processing use cases or ML stream processing use cases or more database-oriented stream processing use cases. So I think the list of people that we have speaking, I think, is going to jive really well for the kind of audience that is attending Data Council and, quite frankly, have some top-notch speakers that I think people do not want to miss. So I'm incredibly excited. I'm going to be attending all these talks for sure. So I'm just really excited to see it. That's for sure. And certainly decodable speaking. So we're always excited about that. <laughs> That's great. Well, we're, I'm really excited to see the, the track and the lineup that you put together. It's going to be, as advertised, um, an amazing track with some, some really top, smart folks there. So um, obviously, we'll have our famous speaker office hours after each talk where people can follow up with the speakers in a private setting, chat with them individually and personally um, about their systems and their questions. So yeah, I'm really excited to, to see the community congeal around this data streaming track in Austin, Eric, and you've done an amazing job in lining up such smart people. So um, hats off to you. Thanks so much, Pete. Really excited to be a part of it. Well, it's great to talk to you, Eric, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in Austin. So until then. Um, me too. I can't wait. Really excited. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Zero Prime Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Eric Sammer. If you'd like to get in touch with Eric, you can find him on Twitter at eSammer, or you can find his company, Decodable, at decodable.co. If you like hearing from engineer founders on the cutting edge of enterprise startups and developer tools, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. We'll see you next time. 